0: Good afternoon and welcome to our latest Insights uh, IIEA event. It's a pleasure to welcome to this event Sabine Veyant, who has been the uh, Director General of the European Commission's Trade Directorate General since uh, June of 2019. Prior to that, she worked as Deputy Chief Negotiator uh, for the Brexit Brexit Task Force, and many people uh, will remember her in that very high-profile role. Uh, She's been with the European Commission for uh, many years and has held many senior positions, uh, as well as within cabinets of different different commissioners over the years. Sabine, you're very welcome, and thank you for taking the time to join us.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Dan. Uh, Greetings from Brussels, and thank you very much for having me
0: right And just so people know this this uh, uh this um talk will go out in podcast format uh next week early next week we hope uh so you'll be able to listen back if you miss any parts of it uh next week great uh, so being maybe start off with a a, um, a slightly positive question or uh, issue to discuss uh given the amount of negativity there is around for very good reason these days um trade for most EU members, and for the EU in total, has recovered strongly since the pandemic. Um, It's something maybe that people don't know as much. It doesn't get as much discussion. Um, How do you feel the perception of trade is in in Europe more widely at the moment? Is is there excessive negativity about globalization, about trade, and and not enough understanding of the benefits it brings?
1: Um... I think you're raising a very important point here, Dan. Um, I think we have seen that already after the financial crisis, that trade was a major factor to help Europe grow out of the crisis. And I think that is also what we've been seeing after uh, the pandemic, or as we were beginning to move out of the pandemic. Um, And here we see a a remarkable resilience uh, of the EU economy and a show of the international competitiveness that we have on the basis of the competitiveness of the single market. And I think this is indeed underappreciated. Now, I do understand why, because obviously, as I said, we uh, uh, were moving out of the uh, pandemic. And then of course, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, um, uh, weaponized the energy uh, supply, and that has created a whole host of new challenges uh, for, for the EU, but also for others uh, worldwide, uh, which is overshadowing this recovery that has been underway. Um, now, I think the war has also changed in a way the perception of trade in the EU. So, uh, and I, we can come back to that. There is a, a, a lot of concern also about uh, negative effects of globalization. And these should not be dismissed. Um, But I also see that the the conversation about trade is changing now. Uh, What do I mean? What I see is that, first of all, we have taken trade for granted. We wake up in the morning. We drink our coffee, which is imported, or our tea, which is imported. Uh, We pick up our phones, uh, which have components from all over the world. Uh, We take uh, uh, our car or uh, our e-bike or another bike uh, to go to work uh, or whatever. And all these issues rely on international division of labor. Um, And I think that the disruption of supply chains that we have seen, first as a result of the pandemic and now as a result of the war, have made us realize what we are missing out on if trade does not continue unhampered. So from that point of view, I also see a change happening in the discussion about trade, where there is a growing realization that we need to have reliable trade links with as many trading partners as possible so that we have access to wider export markets, that we do not become dependent on one or the other market or on one or the other uh, source of imports for critical raw materials, for instance. So. This whole notion of the need for a diversification of trade relations is much more present now than it was uh, a few months ago or a year ago. So the debate is uh, is clearly changing.
0: And I think those of us who strongly support free trade maybe as, as you say are sort of thinking again about security of supply issues and that maybe it's worth paying a little bit more to have greater Security of supply. So that kind of brings us to the EU's um, strategic autonomy debate, or open strategic autonomy debate. You know, does that also mean that there are some um, products that are so important that we really need to have some domestic uh, production, um, uh, and that even if that is more expensive, it's a price worth paying? Are we? Is the debate moving in that direction?
1: Um. Now, there is a clear shift. I think, first of all, globalization and trade fosters efficiency. And we need that efficiency in order to be able to compete. We also need that efficiency in the use of natural resources. So also for what we are faced with now, the green transition, but also the digital transition, we need efficiency in order to master, in order to uh, achieve this transition at the lowest cost possible. So from that point of view, efficiency still is a key element in international uh, uh, trade. And efficiency uh, is also uh, what drives the international exchanges. But you're right to say it's no longer just about efficiency. It is now more and more about resilience as well. And there comes the question of what is the price of resilience. I do see that companies, and we can only encourage them to do that, we do see that companies are saying, it's no longer just about just in time, it's now also about just in case. So uh, diversification of supply chains by companies, I think is a key issue. The question then is, what is this insurance policy you take out uh, in order to deal with possible disruptions or with the, or against the weaponization of trade relations? Um, as I said, this can be a diversification. You deal with more trading partners, Um, which this diversification also gives um, increased uh, value to proximity, I mean proximity has always mattered in trade, uh, but I think it is perhaps even more important now, sometimes this is caught under the term of uh, nearshoring, but then you have the whole question of onshoring, and I think here one has to uh, see whether it makes economic sense because you cannot go against the economic efficiency in the long term. We've actually seen that in the context of the pandemic um, where people thought mm, production of protect- protective masks, we should not be uh, dependent on imports. And then public subsidies went into the production of masks in the EU. Well, the question then is who is going to pay the price for these more expensive masks? And actually this mass production then had to close down because once the uh, um, supply chains resumed and started functioning again, people privileged the price over the domestic production. So I don't think that you can do domestic production against the economics and against the business case. What, however, we need to look at is, if you, if you now look at um, issues uh, such as... Uh, critical raw materials that we need for our uh, energy transition, then you see that worldwide there is a shortage of supply. And here it makes sense to look at all sources that we can use in the future. And we need to look at what are, uh, uh, do we have to go into mining inside the EU? Uh, Do we need to look at refinery of these products? Because there we have a global shortage compared to the demand that will be upon us. So I think there's no simple answer to that. Um, And I think we have to make sure that there also is a question of the division of the responsibility between public authorities and the business sector, because the organization of supply chains is done by business. Public authorities create the framework conditions, framework conditions also for innovation, for incentivizing investment, uh, R&D, et cetera. So I think we need to look at the interplay of these factors And what we are seeing is a mix of some production that may make sense in the EU, Uh, certainly we don't want to uh, be out of the game for the advanced uh, uh, chips production. Um, So that is why we are investing uh, heavily in research and development, but also into um, first uh, uh, productions uh, inside the EU, Uh, but diversification has to be a part of it because Autarky is not an option in today's world. Uh, it, it just doesn't work. And it would, if, even if it were to work, it would be extraordinarily expensive and would mean that Europe would price itself out of competition. You,
0: you mentioned the point that ultimately it's companies and businesses that, that, that determine trade flows mostly, and, and that, that governments, and you know, in Europe's case, the, the commission can set the framework in terms of trade deals. Just in terms of you know the overall evidence for the degree to which bilateral trade deals, for example, influence the amount of trade that happens? Um, EU has signed trade deals with, with Japan, uh, various other countries in recent years. Has that led to greater diversification? And do you see immediate uh, increases in trade flows on the back of those bilateral deals? Um,
1: I think these bilateral deals, Um, have served us very well and have been um, a source of growth and resilience also for for the EU uh, economy. They've also saved European consumers quite a lot of money. We looked at a study uh, that covered the period 1993 to 2013 uh, and that shows that uh, Europeans have saved 24 billion euros per year thanks to our bilateral trade deals. We have also looked at, we are doing these annual reports about the implementation of our free trade agreements. Um, And what you can see there is also that trade with uh, countries with whom we have a uh, trade uh, agreement holds up much better than trade overall. Um, And also in comparison with other competitors around the globe, um, the, uh, the, the, the bilateral trade agreements are doing their job in shoring up also the EU market share in these third countries, and at the same time we benefit uh, from um, cheaper inputs into the production in the EU. Two thirds of what we, in, uh, what we import in the EU actually is intermediate products, uh, so that go then uh, that are then refined in the EU and are, and are exported. Uh, So when we talk about trade, we should not just talk about the benefits of exports, but also the benefits of imports. Um, And I think that is also something which is now much more on people's uh, radar screen. But indeed, uh, if you have a reliable framework for trade, these trade relations hold up better when the going gets tough.
0: In, In terms of the strategic autonomy debate, um, last, I think it was as recently as last week, the United States opened a, a new semiconductor plant, which government, federal money was, was provided to incentivize the company to open the plant. Um, in, in Europe, do you see that as being something potentially, uh, a route Europe could go down in the future? Um, how does it fit in with state aid rules and of mm-hmm. course the politics of it, if Europe were to, uh. Um, invest in a private company to make something like semiconductors uh, the question would be where would it be located and and clearly there would be a political um, discussion let's say amongst the EU member states on that. Uh,
1: What you are raising there Dan is not a theoretical discussion it's a very practical one Um, and is something that we have seen I mean the EU came forward with its own CHIPS Act uh, which also foresees uh, uh, public support, as I said, for research, but also for uh, investment and production, provided there's a certain novelty. But as you as you said, we have in the EU quite a strict and transparent framework uh, for state aid. Now, this framework is constantly adapted to changing circumstances, to the necessity of the Green Deal, but also the digital transformation. Uh, so we are allowing uh, for uh, uh, for these investments. But at the same time, it is very important that we avoid a subsidies race right. uh, inside the EU. And uh, we have indeed uh, been engaging with member states in order to avoid that, because that would just drive up the cost of production in the EU uh, to no great uh, benefit. We are also discussing that with the United States, who now also uh, has agreed its own CHIPS Act, Uh, and has come forward in the Inflation Reduction Act with quite a wide range of uh, public subsidies. Uh, So we are raising this also in the Trade and Technology Council uh, with our US partners uh, in order to have transparency about how both sides support uh, innovation in the sector uh, and to make sure that we do not have a subsidies race uh, between the EU and the US Um, So we we will also need to discuss disciplines in this respect. Now, uh, EU-US doing this together is already a a good start. But of course, we see that around the world, given the um, enormous increase in demand that uh, is upon us, we can see that uh, different jurisdictions uh, spend public money uh, in this sector. And we have to... Uh, look at some ground rules here, because if we don't do that, then uh, we are at risk of, as I said, subsidies raise, which is not just a question of, is that the best use of uh, uh, taxpayers' money? It is also a question of, um, are we not going down the road of supporting um, overproduction if this is done in an uncoordinated manner? And are we not then heading further down the uh, line are we then not heading for trade disputes? Uh, Because people will say, but what is produced there has been produced with a subsidy. So it's distorting competition on my market. So I'm going to put up barriers. And then we would lead to, we would end up with a global fragmentation, which would be very costly. So we have every incentive uh, to also look at transparency, but also subsidies on, uh, sorry, disciplines on what types of subsidies um, make sense, are permitted, and how to do them in a way that is as little uh, 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 trade distorting as, as possible. So uh, that is a discussion which is not easy, um, but uh, for which I think with the Trade and Technology Council we have a good forum, uh, and which we are also discussing in the context of the trilateral with the between the EU, the US and Japan, uh, where we have also been discussing um, issues uh, of uh, industrial subsidies and possible disciplines on them and where we are also looking in particular about how others are supporting the semiconductors industry. So this is quite a difficult challenge ahead of us and we have to get it right.
0: And it's maybe if I could say even more difficult than that, you you mentioned uh, ground rules and clearly countries like the US and and Japan have similar values, similar systems to to the European uh, one. Um, what about countries uh, that don't share those values and can engage in the weaponization of trade, as we've seen it with gas? Is there is there a future role for in, in trade policy for governments um, disincentivizing trade with certain countries? Um, I know that goes into sort of areas of protectionism, but, you know, in, in a world that's more uh, regionalized and where trade can be used as, as, a, as a weapon, are we potentially moving in the direction where uh, trade deals will be reversed or governments will disincentivize trade with certain countries?
1: I think there is a fine line between pushing for diversification on the basis of awareness of where we may have vulnerabilities because we are dependent on uh, one source of supply and protectionism, which is a very costly, uh, uh, a very costly uh, pathway, uh, which we would uh, strongly, strongly discourage uh, from, from DG Trade and from the Commission's point of view. Um, now, what we are also insisting on, so, and, and the, the WTO protects the ground rules of trade and protects us against arbitrary uh, uh, discrimination because of where goods come from. So these ground rules are even more important in a world in which there is a tendency to weaponize uh, uh, trade relationships and, and exploit uh, dependencies. But we also um, need to uh, look then at how, what, what, what is the, we have to make sure that the, um, the medication to the disease is not actually worse than the disease. So if we respond to to, um, dependencies or vulnerabilities with protectionism, um, we would pay a very high price for that. So from that point of view, what we are trying to do is to make sure A, we have ground rules, preferably multilaterally or plurilaterally, otherwise in bilateral trade agreements that ensure that trade takes place on conditions that are fair. But we also say where this is not possible, we have to have the possibility to protect the integrity of the single market and to make sure that uh, competition on the internal market is not distorted. For that, we have increased our uh, toolbox uh, to deal with these challenges. Uh, We already have, and we are using for that purpose, our trade defense instruments, um, where we are also tackling um, some of the more um, innovative ways that China has found uh, to subsidize uh, production, in third countries and then export to the EU, mm-hmm. so we are also tackling through our trade defense anti-subsidies measures, um, uh, uh, subsidization um, that happens on a transnational basis, um, but we are also, we have now equipped ourselves with an instrument uh, that is called the foreign subsidies instrument, where we can also take measures to deal with the negative impact of foreign subsidies that have been granted for establishment or operation of companies in the EU market. So it is this mix of international cooperation and rulemaking uh, backed up by means to act independently that should hopefully protect us against this weaponization. And the latest instrument we are developing uh, in this context is the anti-coercion instrument Um, which uh, is now under discussion between the European Parliament and uh, the the Council, so the Member States, on the basis of a proposal by the Commission, uh, and where we are trying to equip ourselves with the means to react in order to dissuade a country from trying to uh, exercise economic coercion against the EU or its Member States. So it's this combination of engagement and autonomous instruments that we are trying to optimize.
0: And I I should know this, I mean, but I'm just thinking the the screening mechanism put in place for foreign inward, foreign direct investment. Is your DG, does your DG oversee that?
1: Absolutely. Um, And that has been an interesting experience over the last two years, um, because uh, I think we have managed to establish a cooperation with member states on this, which hasn't happened before, where we are taking a closer look at. Uh, Where uh, foreign investors go, uh, what are the targets uh, of investments and takeovers, uh, and what this means for the internal market. Now, uh, it's still not perfect, the system, because it is a system which is built on national FDI screening mechanisms, and not all member states have such mechanisms. So there are still loopholes in this. Uh, So we will have to continue developing this. But uh, we have now established. the beginnings of a culture of cooperation in this respect, um, and I think uh, we are now taking a closer look, um, because very often uh, you don't see that necessarily if you look at just one single uh, operation, one single investment, uh, you need to look at what are the patterns. And then you see that sometimes what is being brought up is uh, what we call uh, hidden champions. They may not be very big, very visible uh, firms. But there may be companies that are world market leaders in their niche um, and they may have a technology which is absolutely essential and which we would not like to end up in the in the wrong hands so this is an instrument which exactly fits into this toolbox of saying uh where we have to act autonomously in order to protect um the functioning of the single market we will do so
0: so uh, maybe i should have Uh, teed up that question uh, better by just saying to listeners that the United States for many years has screened inward investment and it's something that the the EU has has decided to do much more recently uh, for security reasons. But some countries, and Ireland is one of them, was was quite sceptical or a little concerned about the idea of giving Giving the Commission uh, or moving this function away from national levels, there was this, a fear that perhaps it could be um, it could be more damaging for countries like Ireland that, that depend a lot on inward investment. Um, you, you mentioned there's been a sort of culture of cooperation evolving, but to what extent does your um, DG have an active role in in screening this, or as you say, is it is it national screening? Um, Does it happen at a national level, or do you have an active role in it as well?
1: Um, So, first of all, we absolutely need foreign direct investment in the EU. And FDI screening is not about discouraging foreign direct investment. It's to look at the impact uh, that investments may have on uh, security and public policy objectives. So it's not an economic tool, it is much more a security tool. Um, and it is indeed, uh, uh, the way it functions is that it is the national governments that do the screening, and then they inform the Commission about operations that they screen, especially if there is an impact on other member states. And then other member states get to look at this and comment and raise any questions or concerns they have. So it is this sort of coordination that we have built. but. Basically, it's an additional EU dimension, a single market dimension that is added to the national screening. That is the way it functions.
0: And in in terms of the um, the type of uh, foreign direct investment, does it only focus on takeovers of existing companies, or does it also relate to greenfield investment, where a a, a company from an external member an external country is creating a subsidiary from nothing, uh, is that screened or is it only takeovers of existing European com- companies? No,
1: the screening is wider, but the issues, uh, what we have seen is that uh, the operations, we looked at which were of some concern, uh, were essentially takeovers, but we are screening more widely than that. As I said, it depends very much on what, sh- what is covered by the national screening mechanism, because as I said, we don't initiate that, we look at uh, um, operations that are screened by one or the other national authority. And that also means that not all um, member states that do have a screening mechanism have the same criteria.
0: Okay. And tell me, is there an obligation now on on member states to start screening, or is that still uh, up to the individual member state?
1: So far, we have just encouraged member states to have their screening mechanism. Um, But as I said, that has not yet yielded, although there there are uh, ongoing initiatives in a number of member states, uh, this has not yet led to all member states having such a screening mechanism. But there's very much a a, a lively debate about that. And I do hope that we will end up uh, uh, having screening mechanisms in all member states, because that is the only way that we can be sure that we capture all operations that may have an impact on uh, the single market.
0: Okay, okay. You, you mentioned the World Trade Organization earlier on. Um, it's decades since there's been a, a multilateral liberalization uh, agreement. Um, the appellate's body, uh, the, uh, the arbitration function of the WTO isn't working very well for, for uh, a number of reasons. Um, is, is multilateralism effectively dead, and it's all about regional and bilateral trade uh, in the future?
1: Multilateralism has been, not not just as far as the WTO is concerned, but also in the WTO has been under increasing pressure because of the geopolitical tensions that have been rising already for quite a while, even well before the pandemic and and now Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. Um, So uh, uh, it is certainly uh, something, we've certainly seen that multilateral organizations have more and more difficulties uh, doing their job. At the same time, um, I don't think that you can say multilateralism is dead. Uh, If you look at uh, the ministerial conference of the WTO that we have had in June, this has been a very successful conference in very difficult international uh, conditions. Uh, Still, we were able to reach agreement on a number of issues related to food security, to the pandemic. Uh, We reached a multilateral agreement on uh, fishery, on, on uh, dealing with harmful fishery subsidies. It's still a partial agreement, but it was uh, quite an achievement to finally get there. So, multilateralism uh, has uh, quite some life in it still. Uh, and that is something that, from the EU side, we uh, welcome very much because the WTO is an indispensable pillar of the world trading system. As I said, this is basically the only thing that stands be- between new and arbitrary discrimination. Um, And uh, if we didn't have these ground rules, I think the situation would be a lot worse in the current situation where a number of countries weaponize trade relations uh, and uh, 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 take a power-based rather than a rules-based approach to trade. So if we didn't have the WTO, we would have to invent it now. Uh, That would be very difficult, uh, but uh, I think that the WTO is in need of reform for all the reasons you have mentioned. We haven't had uh, a big trade opening multilateral agreement for 25 years. Um, And uh, we also see that the dispute settlement uh, function uh, is not really working because uh, we don't have any uh, people left on the appellate body. So the appellate body has disappeared. Uh, Now countries are uh, appealing uh, panel reports they don't like into the void, so they appeal, but there's nobody there to hear the appeal, so you don't have final adjudication. We uh, have proposed while we are working on restarting um, the dispute settlement system, um, and we are very glad that we managed to have agreement uh, in Geneva in the WTO conference in June that uh, by 2024 we should have a functioning dispute settlement system up and running again. So we are working on that, but we also know that this will take a while uh, to really get back to a multilateral system that works for everyone. So what we've done from the EU side is we have set up with uh, other countries, a uh, multi-party interim arrangement, which basically where uh, we have agreed uh, um, to go for arbitration between us to set up a a second stage, a second panel stage for the participants uh, to this uh, multi-party interim arrangement and to have final arbitration. And uh, that is now something uh, which uh, is is starting uh, to work uh, and where we see that we have uh, 25 trading partners um, accounting uh, for a third of the WTO membership uh, overall, um, and uh, in, including the EU member states and for over 50% of world GDP. Uh, so this MPIA uh, covers already quite a, quite a lot of, of international trade. Um, and uh, this is a uh, stopgap solution until we manage to get the dispute settlement up and running again. But the need for WTO reform is wider. So we need to look also at the monitoring and deliberation function of the WTO. Uh, We have seen that in the early days of the pandemic, it was not the WTO that monitored export restrictions, uh, but uh, private research institutes. Um, I think they are now doing a much better job on uh, on food security by monitoring uh, export restrictions and insisting on their control. With member states and holding WTO members to uh, to their commitments in this respect, but there is we need to strengthen that function and we need to strengthen the role of the WTO Secretariat in this respect, uh, in this respect of holding members to what they have committed to. We also need to um, strengthen the deliberation function because today, as I said, we are all faced with this twin transition of uh, dealing with the climate emergency and the digital transformation of our economies. Um, and we are all taking measures around the globe to deal with that. And these measures have impact or may have impact on other parties. So we need to have a place also to look at what are the trade impacts of measures we are taking. So for instance, we are already, and this is what we are doing. We have this uh, proposed this carbon, uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism in order to avoid carbon leakage and in order to ensure the integrity of our climate policy. But we know that there are certain countries that have concerns about how this would impact them. So we need to sit down and explain to them why uh, we think what we have done uh, is uh, uh, non-discriminatory and is acceptable and how can we link up with other systems of carbon pricing, et cetera. So there is a deliberation function that needs to be strengthened in particular on sustainability. Uh, And here, uh, as I said, I mentioned uh, most of all um, climate change, but it it also applies to international labor uh, uh, issues. Um, And then we need to reform the negotiating function because at the moment the WTO is paralyzed because it can only have agreements if 164 members agree at the same time to go down that route. So um, I think we have to see how we can make it easier for groups of countries to move ahead as long as they are open to everyone joining and as long as what a group of countries um, agrees amongst them does not detract from the rights that other members have. That's what we call open plurilateralism. And we now have uh, two negotiations ongoing in this respect, which are very interesting. One is on e-commerce, which is 1990 language for digital trade. Um, And another one is on investment facilitation, Um, so I think it will be interesting to see how we can get these plurilateral agreements uh, onto the WTO uh, rulebook. So a lot of work in terms of WTO reform, but the organization has a lot of life in it, um, and I think we've seen that in June.
0: Okay, an, an, awful, an awful lot there. You mentioned making the WTO secretariat, uh, giving it giving it more functions, maybe make it, it sounds like making it more like the European Commission, um, allowing different country, groups of countries, you know, variable geometry. Again, it sounds sort of very, very European. Um, given the way the world is going and protectionism and anti-globalization, anti-globalism, Is there really buy-in in in other countries to to make the WTO secretariat more independent and give it more teeth and to make it effectively more like the EU? I'm not sure I sense that feeling out there in the world.
1: No. And uh, if I gave the impression that we would like to transform the WTO secretariat into a sort of WTO commission, that is not the intention. But as I said, it's slightly absurd that the WTO secretariat has less information about what WTO members are doing, for instance, on export restrictions on protective equipment in a pandemic than private research institutions have. So I think we have to, at least in terms of information sharing, in terms of organizing the debates, this deliberative space I was talking about, I think there is a need for the WTO secretariat uh, to be given more cooperation from the members of the WTO. Um, But I I would, I would leave it there at this stage, Uh, but so this is not uh, uh, the equivalent of an EU Commission, I mean the the, the WTO is not comparable to the EU uh, in terms of pooling of sovereignty, I mean the WTO uh, members remain sovereign, but that should not stop the Secretariat from saying, uh, you have committed to this, what exactly are you doing there, and can you, can you sit down with other uh, members who may have uh, questions about this. I mean, this is already there in principle, but it is not really filled with uh, enough life, I would say.
0: And and just going back to the arbitration thing, a couple of questions on that. It's it's been said that the WTO arbitration process is to the global economy what the European Court of Justice is to the the single market. There's a parallel, another European parallel there. But because uh, the appellate body hasn't been working, in real terms, how has that meant, you know, are countries and EU taking fewer cases because the system yeah. isn't working? Has it actually had a material effect? And just in terms of the multi-party arrangement, that a multi-party interim arrangement mm-hmm. that you mentioned, is the US signed up to that?
1: Um, well, first of all, so I think on this, um, on the dispute settlement, what you can see is that there is a temptation Uh, for for countries to appeal into the void. And that means that other countries are shying away from taking cases to the WTO, because they know that in the end, they will not be able to get a final arbitration. So it does have a chilling effect. The disappearance of the appellate body has a chilling effect on the dispute settlement system. Now, uh, the US is not part of the MPIA. Um, As I said, the MPIA is open to everyone, um, and it is now starting to function, and that uh, is very, very welcome. Um, But the US has uh, started a technical uh, process in Geneva uh, where they organize discussions about what do different WTO members want to get out of the dispute settlement system. And what is coming out of that is a very clear Uh, statement by the WTO members that they are very attached to the key features of what was negotiated in 1995, that is an independent two-stage arbitration system, a dispute settlement system uh, that works by negative consensus, uh, i.e. you can rely to have a final ruling, and that is what people want to have, Uh, so we need to see how we can get that up and running again Uh, We are ready to work uh, with the US uh, to see what concerns they have uh, uh, um, and uh, how to address them. So we are looking forward to the next stage of the discussion where we are not only look at the interests of the members, but actually how can these interests best be serviced. Um, And uh, we had already indicated we published a policy paper on this in 2021, uh, where we already gave indications of where we think the discussion can, can go. Uh, it is quite clear that there are also uh, there is an interest in also having an efficient dispute settlement system. So we have seen that the appellate body procedures, but also the panel stages, tend to take too much time. Um, so I think whatever organizational fix we can find in order to uh, get the uh, dispute settlement system to give uh, 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 final assessments, uh, final rulings. At a time when it's still useful for the parties, all this is, is very much needed and, and very useful. But let me also say um, the dispute settlement system is not a court. Um, and the, the appellate body never had the um, power to order a WTO member to withdraw a measure. They could just say this measure is in breach of commitments and the other party is entitled Uh, to compensation if the the party that has been found at fault does not fix the problem. Uh, But uh, the appellate body is not a court, has never been a court. Um, and uh, I think that is an important distinction to, to keep in mind.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Look, we're, we're almost at the end, and I haven't even asked you specific questions about EU's two big trading partners, the two biggest uh, trading partners now, the US and China. Um, I had a question earlier in the week uh, by email on uh, the state of play with the EU-China investment deal. Uh, where is that at the moment? And then more specifically and certainly of big interest to our, our members and listeners in terms of uh, EU-US, EU the Trade and Cooperation Council that's been set up, um, have there been real gains from that? I I, you know, I certainly hear that it's functioning well and people seem to be happy, but, mm. but, but is it is it actually delivering? Are there any particular things that you would highlight in terms of delivery?
1: Um, Okay, I think on the um, comprehensive uh, agreement on investment with China, uh, that is currently frozen at the stage of where we concluded uh, the negotiations uh, at the end of, uh, when was it? I think at the end of 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and um, what, I, uh, what, what I think is, is clear, and the EU has been clear about that, is and from the Commission side we've been clear, we are not going to move this forward as long as the conditions for ratification are not met. And uh, I think as long as uh, members of the European Parliament um, are under sanctions uh, from uh, China, For having supported and spoken out against uh, human rights violations that were the subject of uh, sanctions by the EU. As long as these sanctions against members of the European Parliament are in place, there's no chance uh, to have this agreement ratified. Now, I still think that we would be better off having that agreement in place than not having it in place, uh, but uh, uh, the, the political conditions are simply not there. So that is where we are on this. Now, that doesn't mean. Uh, that we do not have to find other ways of engaging with China. Yes, China is a systemic rival, but we share the same planet. We have to find a way to coexist and we have to organize that coexistence. Um, And that means that we still have to engage with China, difficult and challenging as that is, Uh, but that is what we are working on. But we also have to engage with China on the basis of strength. Again, this is this combination, which we put under the heading of open strategic autonomy, We work with others wherever we can. We act unilaterally wherever we must. Uh, So we also have a panoply of measures and we already touched on a number of them to defend us if there are actions by third countries, including China, uh, that are to the detriment of of the EU's interests and values. Now, to come back to uh, the United States, I mentioned the Trade and Technology Council already before. Um, I think this has been a very positive uh, development because it creates a platform for cooperation on all issues that are at the intersection of trade, technology and security. And that is the heart of where uh, the difficulties in today's geopolitical world are. Now, what has the TTC delivered concretely so far? The TTC and the cooperation we created on export controls has been instrumental in the alignment of sanctions against Russia, that is a very concrete outcome here. Uh, We are also working well together on FDI screening, I think that is important as well. Um, I think we are making progress also on the tech sector by uh, working on principles uh, on uh, uh, artificial intelligence but also the whole cooperation on supply chain resilience uh, takes place in the the TTC, and I think that is positive. Now, this being said, we also face challenges. We have a very cooperative approach with the Trade and Technology Council, but then we have developments in the US like the Inflation Reduction Act. We welcome the climate policy objectives behind it, but we see that the uh, subsidies uh, are discriminatory against the EU, that they are based on by America, made in America, local content, local assembly in the US, uh, which has a very negative impact on investments in the EU. And that is something that we also have to uh, talk about with our US partners. And for that, the TTC is also a forum where we have to discuss these uh, difficult issues. What is more difficult also in the TTC is to discuss concrete trade enhancing, measures that really foster bilateral transatlantic uh, trade and investment relations. The US has a different concept here. They want to use this to coordinate with the EU on global challenges, uh, um, for instance, raised by non-market economies. Uh, but the objective of the, of the TTC is also uh, to foster bilateral uh, transatlantic trade and to avoid uh, the emergence of new trade barriers. So um, I think it is good that we have a glass. I don't know whether it's half full or three quarters full, but there is definitely more to be done.
0: Okay. Sabine, so uh, on that note, we've run out of time and I haven't asked you half the questions I wanted to. We didn't even get to Brexit, which I, I know some people will be uh, will be irked by, and I apologize, but it, it's a, a very good reason to hope you might join us again next year and uh, we could have a couple of questions on Brexit and many of the other bilateral uh, trade relationships that we didn't get to discuss. But in the meantime, uh, thanks so much for giving us your time. Uh, It was a fascinating discussion and uh, wish you a good afternoon and a good afternoon to all our uh, viewers and listeners.